0: Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Before we begin, I encourage you, my listeners, to listen to the last two podcasts where I had a conversation with Dr. Saul Kassin about his new book, Duped, which centers around the topic of false confessions. On the evening of September the 3rd, 1990, a crime took place on a New York City subway platform, resulting in the death of 22-year-old Brian Watkins in town from Utah to see the U.S. Open. Due to a false confession and no other key evidence, Johnny Hincapier, age 18 at the time, was convicted of taking part in this crime. His case will be the centerpiece of the next two podcasts. Now with us today are Johnny Capier, who was exonerated in 2015 subsequently awarded 18 million dollars by the city and state of New York. Also with us are his lawyers, Gabriel Harvest and Barry Fett, who filed a complaint on Johnny's behalf against the city and state of New York. Mr. Harvest and Ms. Fett co-chair the Civil Rights Division at their law firm, a law firm that I don't know how to pronounce, so I'm going to ask Barry to do that for me. What is the yes. law firm?
1: no problem. We're at the law firm of Elif Tarrakis, Elif Tarrakis and Panic.
0: All right, very good. <laughs> Thank you for that. Both specialize in high-profile cases of wrongful conviction. And welcome to you all. Thank you. All all right, so let's begin. Um, I'm going to uh, start with Gabe. Uh, This is a complex case. Let's begin, if you would, by sketching a picture of Johnny 33 years ago.
2: Sure. So uh, Johnny was, uh, at the time of these events, he was uh, just a little bit over his 18th birthday. It was about three months after his 18th birthday, and Johnny was still in the process of completing high school. He is, um, he was and is, you know, a really wonderful, uh, kind and charismatic person, as I'm sure we'll get a chance to hear about on the podcast. And, you know, he was known to be someone who loved to dance, someone who uh, was very friendly and outgoing, and uh, someone who would never be involved in any kind of trouble. And he was raised in a very devout household by, you know, a religious family. It was him and his younger brother, Alex, were the two kids in the family. And Johnny was hoping, you know, he had a lot of professional aspirations. He, he wanted to be a dancer uh, and, and do other things, you know, in the entertainment field. And he was the kind of person who was raised to really trust law enforcement and to believe that, you know the police were there to help him, and that they would always do the right thing. And you know the 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 context of the case is very important because this case came uh, just about eighteen months after the first convictions in the Central Park Jogger case involving the group of young men now known as the Exonerated Five. And so it was a time of a lot of racial and political strife in the city. Uh, the family that was the victims in the case uh, was a white family of of tourists from Utah. And as you said, they were in town to see the US Open tennis tournament, which was very important because the mayor at the time was David Dinkins, who was a huge tennis fan. And so the the racial and political dimensions uh, of a white family in town to see the US Open getting attacked on a Midtown subway platform were extremely severe. And they set in motion a very uh, serious police effort to hunt down the perpetrators of the crime. And another important thing to keep in mind is that Bill Bratton, who would go on to serve two terms as the police commissioner of New York, was at that time the head of the New York City Transit Police, which was a separate unit back then from the NYPD. And so Bill Bratton has described uh, this crime as basically being a tipping point for the city of New York. Uh, After Brian Watkins was killed, the uh then the governor um mario cuomo contacted david dinkins and basically told him tell me what you need in terms of resources uh in order to uh, put more police officers on the streets and you can kind of draw a straight line from the crime that johnny was convicted of to um a decrease in crime that has persisted to this day i mean just to give you a sense uh, of what it was like there were over 2200 homicides in new york city in the year that this happened in 1990. And last year there were something like 350. And so it's really hard to even imagine uh, what it was like back then when people actually feared uh, murders, uh, you know, being a regular part of life on the subway. And so, you know, the, the, there's no way to think about what happened to Johnny without thinking about both his background as someone who trusted law enforcement and the political moment in which, you know, the, the sort of uh, combustible moment in which the crime took place.
0: And I'm um, just wondering, uh, Johnny had no uh, experience or exposure to uh, any uh, of police in his background, right?
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, Johnny had never even received so much as a parking ticket in his life. So when he, you know, he always, he'd never been inside of a police precinct. So for him, you know, the police were a group of people that you turned to when you needed help and certainly nothing to be afraid of. That they could be trusted. Yeah, exactly, and that and that you know that that they were people that you could turn to when you needed help.
0: Right. Okay. So I, I think that is pretty fair uh, picture there. And now um, I'm going to ask Johnny if would you be able to add anything to what Gabe has just shared. And as you look back now from a, a long perspective can you share any thoughts you have about false confessions and interrogations that are not recorded? So let's take the first part. Is there anything you would add to what um,
3: Gabriel has said? Uh, Hello, everyone. I I think uh, Gabriel uh, really gave uh, a a good concise or more of a lengthy extension version of exactly what took place in my life uh, when I was wrongfully convicted back then. The only thing that I would probably add to what he would say is that, because of the high crime rate uh, that existed back in 1990, um, everyone uh, really accepted uh, a, a videotape confessions for what they were. Uh, there was no real evidence to determine if it was a false confession, and 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 the fact that uh, a, a white family from Utah, a white Mormon family came from Utah, not knowing that a police detective was beating me up in order to make sure I was falsely confessing. Um, there was no way whatsoever in order to show or produce to a jury or, or, or to a judge more so uh, uh, that, that I was innocent. Uh, and, and, and in addition to that, uh, the, the the notoriety, the publicity played such a major factor in my conviction. It, it, it was like there was no way whatsoever. Even if there was such evidence to show uh, that there was a false confession, um, it, it, it was like a, a case that was already sealed. And mm. uh, in, in regards to false confessions, um, it's 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 a necessity. It's mandatory that. Um, there there be placed videotape cameras all over the police precincts throughout the United States. But I think that um, in some way, it's kind of a fiasco for those states that have approved police cameras, I mean, cameras in in police stations, because they've only been approved inside the interrogation rooms. So it's easy for a detective to take someone else in another room Mm -hmm. and still do what he did to like what he did to me, and then bring him back to the room in order to, for him uh, to, to make a false confession. So how do we fix something like that if they're not going to put uh, cameras in every room throughout police station? Um, my suggestion to, to really uh, aid and help with the situation is what, ha- what we have seen throughout the years with false confessions, or through DNA or anything else, when it comes to wrongful uh, convictions and that is education. Judges back then weren't really educated on the fact of false confessions. Uh, I think there's a lot of complacency when it comes to uh, 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 certain judges sitting in uh, supreme courts. Um, They're used to uh, just listening and hearing certain type of cases and seeing the norm of certain convictions, so it's basically about you know, who raises the best argument based on evidence. But what happens when you don't have that evidence? What is a judge able to do? So um, we need to educate uh, uh, like how everybody's been a- being educated or welcome for convictions. We have such a higher percentage of people being exonerated nowadays because of false confessions, but we need to still continue to educate judges uh, and, and everybody uh, in order to try to see if we can get a statute Uh, that is passed where judges can possibly have in their hands a guideline, the same way there's a guideline for sentencing guidelines, for sentencing laws, maybe a guideline where they can see the points of false confessions. And I say that because if if, if there's an indigent person that doesn't have the financial resources in order to hire an attorney, uh, and he's appointed a legal aid attorney uh, uh, by the court, then the attorney more than likely is not gonna be able to have the resources in order to hire a false confession expert in order to come to testify on his behalf. So the same way we have at least now notions of DNA evidence that uh, judges take into consideration that are presented to them, we need to have more uh, education presented to judges so they can have a guideline in order in, to realize what is a false confession and what is not. And then maybe, maybe this way, we can start reducing wrongful convictions that are dealt, that deal with false confessions. And and I would add to
0: what you said, everything you said was so right on. We also have to educate the juries, right? They're Absolutely. the deciding factor. And I remember yesterday I, w- I was talking to Dr. Kassin. He said that um, a false confession is just trumps everything, that nothing will be more critical than that, even when the DNA doesn't match, as he put it. It doesn't matter that the confession is there and that's what the jury hears. So that's an important point, but I like what you said. Um, Okay, we'll now bring in Barry. Um, Can you shine a light On the techniques that are used by the police, not just that day with Johnny, but with other juveniles, such as the exonerated five. And the interesting fact is that the same officers who interrogated the suspects involved in the case of the Central Park jogger were the same in the Watkins case.
1: Right, that's true. There were a few detectives in Johnny's case that were also involved in the interrogations in the Central Park Jogger case. And, and really what happened to Johnny and what happened to the exonerated five is, is a process where they're already presumed to be guilty. The officers, for whatever reason, have decided they're guilty. Um, they can start out by asking a few questions, but then they decide. The officers that someone is guilty, and and really, I think I'm sure Dr. Casson talked about how um, it's almost impossible for another human being to know that uh, that a person is lying. And so, once the officers have made that decision, uh, the whole, re- the entire, you know, remaining part of the interrogation is simply to um, get them to confess and close the case. So they're not coming from the perspective of, let me find out what happened. Let me get some facts from this person. They're just trying to close the case. And so, for example, in Johnny's case, um, and, and in the Central Park Five, um, you know, they, it's okay to lie. They're allowed to lie. And so you have these young kids, Johnny had just turned 18. Um, you know, some of the kids in Central Park Five were, were you know, younger than that. And mm-hmm. they're taken away from their parents and um they're lied to and they're lied to not just in terms of oh your friend down the hall already said you did it so why don't you just you know make it easy on yourself it's not just that but it's also what they did with johnny was they said um listen we know you didn't do it you know we know that you didn't stab him um but just tell us that you you know you knew what was going to happen you would talk to your friends and you knew that um and so just by lying to johnny and having him kind of admit uh, uh, um, a peripheral uh, part in this, they were really trapping, me, tra- trapping him into admitting felon- into felony murder. And so Johnny, who's never even had, you know, any uh, interaction with law enforcement, and he truly thought he was helping them. And so for someone like him, you know, he thinks, oh, okay, if I just say this, then they're going to let me go home. And and Johnny just isn't like making that up. They literally say to him, listen, if you just help us out and just, you know, just just say that you knew what was going on and you knew that one of your friends had a weapon, you know, then we're going to take you right home. And so you have someone that, you know, it's a teenager. We, I'm sure Dr. Casen talked about it. Their their brains aren't fully formed. Um, they're they're susceptible. They want to please. Um, and they think, and I know Dr. Casson said this, they think that well, the cops know I'm innocent, so they're mm-hmm. gonna they're gonna um, they're gonna find out what really happened, and so nothing bad is gonna happen to me because I'm innocent. But the problem is is that the officers are coming into the interrogation room, and they've already decided you're guilty, so they're not trying to figure it out. They're trying to close the loop and prove their case. And so, for example, in Johnny's case. Um, I think it was within like 24 hours or w- really quickly for a case of this size. Um, the paperwork the DD5s were already indicating that the officers were saying case closed. Mm. They had already just closed this case in in I don't uh, 24 or 36 hours. And so that's that's really the problem and and of course back then these interrogations were not uh, videotaped. So these officers could actually physically harm Johnny, they could lie to him, um, they could write the statement for him and tell him just to sign at the end. And we nobody gets to see that. But the confession is videotaped. So all a jury sees is that last step. And I know Dr. Kassin has said this also, you know, juries, um, it's easier for most people to to understand why someone would commit suicide. It's easier for someone to, you Identify with that versus falsely confessing. Most people, why would you ever do that? If you didn't do it, why would you ever do it? So
0: forgive me for going on and on. But uh, yeah,
1: so that, that, those were some of the techniques that we used with Johnny and in some of these
0: cases. It's the pathway, I think, Barry, what you're saying, that leads to that false confession that's kind of out of view, hidden. And yes. so they, people see the jury in particular, uh, they see that final step, the confession, and they they have no knowledge of what preceded it, which is, is so dangerous, um, f- especially for kids. And, and if I might add, I'm sorry, just one
1: more Please. thing. In Johnny's case, so they interrogate him, you know, they, they physically, they put his hands on him, they pull his hair out, um, they make him sign this. And then the officers that actually just interrogated him go into the room with the DA and um, for Johnny's confession, they're sitting behind the DA staring at Johnny. Mm. So the level of intimidation and fear is just off the
0: charts in that situation. And it it certainly must be terrifying to an adult what possibly could go through the head of a 14, 15-year-old, 16, 17, you know, any any of yeah. those. Um, all right. So we'll we go back to Gabe. And my question to you is why was this particular case such a high profile case? Why all the press? And you did speak to the crime rates in the city at the time, but I still want to know why, why did this case stand out?
2: Well, so, you know, it was, as I said, I mean, it's, this is happening in the shadow of the Jogger case. So it's it's really hard sitting here in 2023 to put yourself back to what the city was like in 1990. But it was absolutely at the height of, you know, racial tension around the Central Park Five. and this And the Central Park Five stood for something very different at that time. I mean, we were just... You know, months after Donald Trump had taken out, you know, a full page ad in the, the the newspaper demanding the execution of the suspects in the Central Park Five case. And and at that time, you know, there was a very clear sentiment uh, that was in favor of the police, in favor of a heavy handed law enforcement response to what was seen as out of control. Uh, groups of youth committing uh, this violence. It it led to a feeling of anarchy and a lack of safety for the residents of the city that was simply inconceivable for a politician and the leaders of the city to deal with. And so when this happened, it was immediately apparent, and Bill Bratton has said that it was immediately apparent that they needed to go out and not just get one or two of them, but these are his words, but get every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And so the story of Johnny's case is really the story of that in action, because the police had evidence in their possession before Johnny was even arrested of one of the young men who was an admitted participant in the crime, Who, during his own videotaped confession, which preceded Johnny even being arrested. He said more than once he was insistent when he was talking to the district attorney that Johnny had left the scene before the crime was committed. He said that repeatedly. And so, you know, and this was, and everything he had said had the ring of truth and it was very credible. And so the police had that and, and evidence to show that Johnny was not involved. They had absolutely nothing to suggest that he was involved. And yet before they even started to look for him, they had already concluded that he was not only involved, but he was guilty of murder. They then uh, are able to, what happens is they start pumping all these kids for information and they have these very aggressive, interrogation sessions. And Johnny was the last person brought into the precinct. And so what happened was they were saying to these, uh, what happened was that night, there was a big party at the Roseland ballroom, which was in midtown Manhattan at that time. And so Johnny and about 50 or 70 other kids had traveled from Queens to go to this party. And the police arrested some kids at Roseland, you know, like four o'clock in the morning when Roseland was closing, they brought them back to the precinct and they started pumping them for information. And they were saying to them, you know, they wanted to know who was involved in the crime, but they also just wanted the names of everyone who had been going to Roseland. Mm. And so in that context, Johnny's name was mentioned as legitimately as someone who was coming from Roseland, who was acquainted with some of these people. And then what the police did was they took that information and they they arrived at the conclusion, the wrong conclusion, the unsupported conclusion, that Johnny was uh, guilty of this crime. They called the phone number that they had for Johnny's house. And they did what they called a Russo scam, which was a police terminology for pretending that they were the phone company and they had some service issue at Johnny's house. So they then persuade his mom to provide the address and police officers go to Johnny's house. They tell his mom that they just need to speak to him and convince her to let them bring him back to the precinct. And when they bring him back to the precinct, it's not in effort to find the facts about what happened, it's not an effort to say, look, we have some evidence saying that you were on the train. What do you have to say about it? It was, you're going to tell us what we want to hear. And you're going to get to go home, or you're never going to see your family again. And we can we're the police, we can do whatever we need to, uh, you know, in this situation. And, and Johnny even said to them, you know, well, what if I had a lawyer here? What would my lawyer say? And they said to him, no, your lawyer would say, this is the right thing to do. You should sign this paper. So why don't you sign it so you can go home? And I think I got a little far afield from the original question about uh, uh, crime rates. But but, th- but the answer to the question is, you know, it was the racial dynamics of the situation. It was a white family having been uh, having this tragedy happen. And there were some aggravating factors that really made it particularly egregious in the minds of the politicians and the, the residents, which was. Uh, you know, this young man who was killed was killed defending his mother from an attack from a bunch of kids who seemed really utterly lawless. And Mm -hmm. so it was a heroic act and he was stabbed and killed. And then they took the wallet from his father's pants and they went to Roseland Ballroom and they used the money to buy tickets to go dancing. And everybody found that to be, and it is, it's a horrible thing. And there's no doubt that that is a real tragedy. But, you know, what happened was, it was, it was the ultimate example of, you know, a sweep in which they got some of the right people and because, you know, nobody cared enough to really figure it out, they got some of the wrong people too. And, you know, that's the story of Johnny spending more than 25 years in prison.
3: Right.
0: And it also brings up that term that's been bandied around and written about and quoted the term super predators that I think also applied at that particular time Um, that we were waiting for gangs of kids to do bad things and um, the prediction never materialized, but the thought was still there. We are almost out of time for our podcast today. And I know you'll all come back and we'll talk some more. Um, so I, I think um, I, I wanted to speak to you, Johnny, but we'll save that for the other side <laughs> when we we come back. And thank you all for opening up the, the case. And we're going to delve much deeper into it um, in the next podcast. So thank you, uh, my listeners. And once again, this is Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel on Society Bites Radio. See you next time.